Welcome to Saltier Politics. This week, our schedules have poured a mountain of salt all over our pod plants. So what we're doing is a best of pod and bringing back some great moments from one of our earlier interviews. The interview we're talking about this week was from November 2018 with Yale professor and author of How Fascism Works, Jason Stanley. Ilhan Omar actually tweeted about fascism in response to the Department of Homeland Security this week asking for immigrants' social media information on applications to travel, saying, quote, Make no mistake, this is fascism in action. There's no guarantee that the Trump administration won't weaponize immigrants' political views against them by denying entry. So let's let's talk about fascism. Without further ado, Jason Stanley. Germany in 1938 was a country that was fairly new. Uh, it had not had the institutions that we have today in the United States, for example. Obviously, they, they had been part of um, the Kaiser. It was, not, it was not so long before that that the Kaiser was forced to abdicate. Uh, Weimar Germany was a transitionary period, and then the Nazis obviously came to power um, a, less than a decade before Kristallnacht and certainly um, before the start of World War I. So they didn't really have the institutions that the United States has. And don't you think that we potentially, or maybe you don't think, that we as a country have institutions that could survive those same nationalistic tendencies um, that Germany was not able to survive back in the 1930s? Well, we're a country that only very recently emerged from, uh, from, a, from a situation in which the hated outgroup, black Americans, was not able to vote in large parts of the country when there were laws prohibiting the marriage, mar- intermarriage between blacks and whites, members of the outgroup and members of the in-group. Very recently, up until the 1960s, uh, uh, these were the very same laws upon which the Nuremberg laws were based. So. It's always the case, fascism is a politics of purity. There's fear about intermixing between the out-group and the in-group. And the Nuremberg Laws illegalized relations between Jews and Germans, and they're based on laws that lasted until the 1960s in the United States. We, uh, after the Civil Rights Movement, which arguably produced, you know, the, the first moments of real democracy in the United States, where where one group was not systematically excluded, we went right into uh, a period of mass incarceration where, you know, in the early 1970s, there were fewer than 300,000 people in prisons and jails. And now there are around 2.5 million, between 2.2 and 2.5 million. So that's, a, <laughs> in, by any measure, an enormous uh, increase, much less the millions and millions more on probation which is effectively a sentence that excludes you from society. So we have an enormous surveillance state. We have an enormous criminal apparatus. One quarter of all the prisoners in the world are incarcerated in the United States. And it's largely directed against our black population. Nine uh, percent of the world's prison population is black American. It comes from the tiny group of people of black Americans, 38 million black Americans. Nine percent of the world's prison prisoners are black American. To my knowledge, I think the only time in the world that's been replicated where such a small group 
such a small group constituted such a large group of the world's prison population was the Holocaust. You see incredible susceptibility towards lack of empathy towards outgroups. And, and Jason, I'd kind of like to hop onto that and about, because in your book you talk about the terrible tropes and, and outgroups being labeled in that right now with how a lot of times how fascists discredit individual freedom. And you gave the Colin. Uh, about Colin Kaepernick, about he's showing and exercising freedom, but how the president is currently discrediting that. It, it all kind of made sense to me when I read your book. Could you elaborate on that? Yes. So for in fascism, things sort of, you invert things. So freedom means freedom only for the members of the chosen nation. So Kaepernick, by exercising freedom, since he's not a white American, <laughs> is, is represented, because he's not a white American, is represented as, in fact, challenging freedom, challenging the flag, for, uh, bowing down to the flag to a symbol, uh, to a symbol of nationalism, to a symbol, to a symbol of the nation, uh, is, uh, is taken to be emblematic of freedom, when, in fact, it's part of American history. It's part of our values to allow for protest. Freedom is the freedom to engage in protest. And of course, Colin Kaepernick is not protesting the flag at all. He's protesting the mistreatment of black American citizens, and it has nothing to do with the flag. Um, but his exercise of freedom, because he's, he's a member of, uh, of a minority group, is taken, is misrepresented as somehow a challenge to our values. So, so this is, it's kind of like states' rights. States' rights were in the first instance, states' rights were all about like the liberty of states to do what they want. But what, were, what was that liberty? That liberty was originally the liberty to enslave. You know, the, one of the themes that you touch on in your book, which which has been driving me absolutely insane for a good, oh, I don't know, probably going back to the time that Sarah Palin was on the ballot, although I'm sure it probably right. predates that, is this notion of anti-intellectualism. And it really reached an absurd point for me in 2000 and, uh, was it 12, when Mitt Romney ran against Barack Obama, both Harvard graduates, and Romney criticized Obama for being a Harvard graduate, um, when I think back in the day, people aspired to send their kids to good schools. You, you are a professor at Yale, so I know you probably would agree with me that that's quite an accomplishment. But this notion of anti-intellectualism, where people point to these East Coast elites, and a lot of times what they're talking about are not the rich people sitting in their penthouse on Park Avenue, but what they're talking about are academics, um, as this bastion of liberalism and this bastion of indoctrination of children or young adults into liberalism. That strikes me as something that is a predicate for a society that doesn't want to self-examine. You talk about that as something that's really a predicate for fascism. Um, so can you expand on that a little bit? Yes. So that's, <clears throat> that's intellectually fascism promotes anti-intellectualism. The idea fascism is all about fascism is all about power and loyalty and fear of the other. And so, and you find fascist intellectuals sort of promoting this, promoting a kind of irrationalism. And the idea is that, uh, that the, the enemy of fascism is, is truth and reason. Uh, Hitler in Mein Kampf talks about 
how good propaganda should always be aimed at the least educated members of the population. Steve Bannon, and I'm not comparing Steve Bannon to Hitler, I'm just saying that the, in terms of his policies, but I'm saying that the, the propaganda, the rhetoric, the ideology strongly overlaps. Steve Bannon said, we got people to the polls on fear, on rage and fear. It was build the wall and lock her up that got people to the polls. And you find Hitler urging the same political maneuvers in Mein Kampf. He says, that's, you know, you need to channel fear, you need to overwhelm rationality. Uh, now, the thing about so in fascism, you have one dominant group setting the stage, and the one dominant group's perspective is, should, is, is imposed upon the society as the only legitimate perspective. And you, uh, but in fact, history is more complex than that. At any point in time in history, there are multiple groups, and the multiple groups each have a different experience of the same time. And so... so what you do in a university is, you know, universities are guided by the truth. So you're guided by the fact that one point of his in history, each point in history, is much more complex than just uh, that the the view from the dominant. But I'm going to just stop you right there and, and just say this to you. I spent a long time at Fox News, um, which doesn't, I, I'm sure as you can understand as an ideology, doesn't necessarily agree with what you're saying. They would say, and I think a lot of people might agree, that universities are not looking for truth, that they would say that universities are espousing a particular truth that they consider to be truth, but others consider to be the antithesis of the truth, and that the Ivy Leagues and other elite universities are indoctrinating young people into a certain set of liberal beliefs. And so I think if you were debating somebody at Fox or somebody who's of a conservative bent, they might say to you that, in fact, no, that what you're doing is not espousing the truth as a university professor or as an intellectual. What you're espousing is a particular liberal belief. Right. So uh, a couple of points here. First, a local point about the United States right now and my university. Yale University produced three politicians who ran for governor, uh, Stacey Abrams in Georgia, Rod DeSantis, in Florida, and Chris Kobach at Kansas, in Kansas went to Yale Law School. Uh, Abrams and Kobach went to Yale Law School. DeSantis went to Yale uh, as an undergraduate. I don't think you can look at those three and say there's one uniform ideology that unites them. Uh, but, uh, and similarly, uh, as you earlier pointed out, you know, uh, I mean, uh, Mitt Romney, Barack Obama, George Bush, these are all Yale or Harvard graduates with very different ideologies. So, uh, so the reality belies that, but more generally, the attacks that Fox News levels are exactly the, the attacks you find all around the world in authoritarian governments. They're authoritarian attacks in universities, because universities challenge ideas. Universities are the places where many perspectives are considered and challenged and debated, and that's a tremendous threat. So we just had for example, in Hungary, Viktor Orban uh, closed down, Ill, make illegal the teaching of gender studies. Uh, Central European University was just closed down in Hungary. That's the best university in Hungary for spreading liberalism. St. European University in St. Petersburg in Russia closed down for gender studies, for Is, teaching gender studies. Isn't that because so, that's a threat to the patriarchal order that you talked about? That's the basis of fascism? Yes. So... You pick, you pick a favored uh, uh, perspective. So we talked earlier about how history involves multiple perspectives. 
will have a perspective to, to, to have an area of the university that studies how women experience history is a, is a grave threat to fascist ideology. Well, I thought what was really interesting is, and I think it kind of ties into this, is about how fascists define who was really raped and the idea of victimhood and kind of recasting women and a lot of times liberal, liberals as ones who can't be raped. For example, Trump saying people pro, the, the women protesting were paid by Soros when really they were protesting sexual assault violence. I think the victimhood thing is interesting. And, and you, you talk about that as well in your book, and you're saying victimhood is a, is a key cornerstone of this mentality. So this is, very, so this is, this is a very common phenomenon. Let me give a dramatic, a drastic instance of it. Consider what happened to the Rohingya people in uh, Myanmar. In 2012, three Rohingya men raped a ranking woman. In response... The entire Rohingya population was consigned to about 200 villages from which they were prevented from leaving in the evening. Of course, they lost their livelihoods and their jobs. And as the years progressed, this harsh rhetoric against the Rohingya, the Rohingya are rapists, they're criminals, they're lazy, they live off the state, began to increase even more, although it was always a part of, of that rhetoric. There was a, that, that rhetoric directed against the Rohingya was always there. It just became much more uh, intense. And of course, the fact that the Rohingya were living off the state was due to the fact that they were consigned to these 200 villages. So, uh, so eventually in 2017, the rhetoric became reality and the Rohingya were viciously attacked and Rohingya women were mass raped. But no one speaks of the, not of the non-Rohingya population as rapists, even though what the Rohingya women encountered was absolute horror, ma the mass rape of ethnic cleansing. Well, since you bring, bring up the Rohingyas, it's interesting because Aung Suu Kyi, who's now um, nominally, I guess, in charge of Myanmar or Burma, um, although the military junta is still in charge, was herself a victim and herself oppressed um, by this junta and is, from what I can tell, doing really nothing to help out the Rohingya. So... That I guess that's par for the course, right? That sometimes the oppressed becomes the oppressor um, in many ways. Because, because victimhood, the feeling of victimhood, this is why in fascist politics you make your supporters feel like victims because victimhood masks reality. So, you know, victimhood creates this outrage. Like if you think of the Serb Serbian, Serbian nationalism, it was entirely based on a, on a grievous sense of victimhood. And, of course, the Serbians were victimized in World War II, for instance. But victimhood can mask your own uh, terrible actions. So similarly in Germany, you know, the German mistre the mistreatment of the Germans in Versailles was, of course, this huge theme in Hitler's politics, as was the supposed mistreatment of ethnic German populations abroad. Uh, so... A so you constantly, if you want to urge a population to be inhumane towards others, you convince them that they are victims. Now, of course, sometimes some populations are victims, were genuinely oppressed, and you know it's important that they recognize that. But when it's what's frightening is when uh, the dominant group is sort of re blinded by this 
victim by by victimhood. And would you say that's going on here, Jason? Would you say that what's happening here is that you've got, um, especially among certain segments of our population, you've got, uh, and this is by no means applicable to all white voters, but you've got a segment of white voters who feel like they're being oppressed, they're being kept down. Um, people of color are getting all the benefits, whether it's admissions into into colleges or other social benefits, um, and that they feel like they're losing their hold and their grip and they're being reverse discriminated against, and that's making them feel like a victim, despite the fact that, frankly, it is very, I think, much better to be a white man in this country than it is to be anything else from a purely statistical point of view. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and Trump, of course, uh, his politics involves hitting that again and again, not just with whiteness, but with Christianity. You can say Christmas again, as if, you, as if, there was ever a time in this country where you couldn't say Christmas, Merry Christmas. Uh, so tr uh, many of Trump's supporters aim their ire not at the wealthy elites whose, uh, whose children fill elite schools with legacy admissions, but rather with, uh, with, with uh, long, long oppressed or hated minority groups. So yeah, you, you, you aim you aim the anger not at its appropriate target, which one might think would be the, kind, the, the people whose policies led to loss of jobs, for instance, or the bankers whose, whose policies led to the financial crisis. But you aim it against minority groups, and you make people think that increased equality for women, for non-whites, is taking things away from them. And you do it by creating a zero-sum game. You say, there's only a, a finite, there's only a small pie, there's a pie, and any slice given to anyone else is less for you. When in fact, say, with, say, immigration, it doesn't work like that. It's not like immigrants come and take a slice, and so you don't get that slice. You know, immigrants come, and they have children and uh, who enter the workforce and pay taxes and expand the economy. I have... On that point, a question. So I recently went uh, for work to cover the Young Black Leadership Summit in D.C., which was a group of black Republicans listening to Trump. And one of their points was that political orthodoxy of the Democrats has kept them down. And Dems want to keep black people down with welfare. I'm a strong advocate of multi-party democracy. My loyalty is to multi-party democracy. So I think we need Republican ideas. We need Democratic ideas. I, I see both Republican, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party as large tents with inconsistent ideas uh, in them. Um, so I'm glad that there are a substantial number of black Republican voters. Um, that said, I think statistically, if you look at the socioeconomic situation, you know, uh, it's just defying reality to, to blame black Americans for the fact that there's a 20 to 1 wealth gap. I mean, the average, the average black child is born into a family with, with $5,000 of wealth, whereas the average white child is born into a family with over $120,000 of wealth. So it's hard for me to see, given that we're talking about children, that we're talking about fault. Um, and those, the, those are the results of long-term structural barriers to black wealth. And so uh, then, you, then you look at uh, other statistical facts, the fact that 
black men, as Diva Pager, the recently tragically deceased Harvard sociologist, showed in her dissertation, that uh, that black uh, uh, black men seeking jobs without a criminal record get fewer callbacks than white men with a criminal record. So there's all sorts of statistical evidence. There's huge disparities in wealth between black Americans and white Americans from birth. And so, you know, given that, uh, given, you know, it's, it's hard for me to blame a child born into a, a family with one-twentieth uh, the wealth of another family. It's hard for me to see it as that child's fault. Jason, um, I learned something interesting about you, and just for full disclosure, you and I, you and I have known each other for, I don't know, 20 years, more probably. You were... Um, the thesis advisor to my best friend at Cornell when you were teaching there. And the scary thing about you is I think you were probably 25 when you were her thesis advisor. I wasn't her thesis advisor. You weren't? Okay, well, you were were her professor, I guess. Um, And she was an undergrad, and I think she was probably three or four years younger than you at the time. Um, But the one thing I never knew about you is you told me today you went to a bunch of different schools, and one of the schools you went to, colleges, I should say, was in Germany. You moved there when you were 17. You started college when you were 16. And you moved to um, Tübingen University in Germany to study philosophy, which is pretty amazing. But you made a living while doing that by cleaning the bus depot there, right? Yes. <laughs> I was, in the mornings, I would get up at like 7 in the morning and head to the Tübingen bus depot to uh, clean the underside of buses with a steam gun until about 11 a.m., and then I would clean up and head, head in around noon to the university to my Hegel's Logic Seminar. In German? In German. That's pretty amazing. The other thing that I think is hilarious, so on this show, we um, pl- play a game with all our guests called Truth, Two Truths and a Lie, and everybody else that I asked to do this, to come up with Two Truths and a Lie, had absolutely no problem doing that because apparently they're all accomplished liars, but you who studied um, Immanuel Kant... Um, take <laughs> truths very literally. <laughs> and therefore, you had a problem figuring out exactly what I meant by lying, because according to um, Kant, if I remember from my philosophy classes back in college, you really shouldn't lie even if the Nazis are coming to get you and you're locked in a closet, right? So I think you had a difficult time struggling with the two truths and a lie. Have you thought about what those are? You want to you share those with us? We'll try to guess. I- I finally did. Okay, give it, give it to us, and we'll try, to, we'll try to figure out how bad of a liar you are. Okay, so my father's dissertation is on my wife's tribe. On your wife's tribe. Okay, your wife my is wife. from where in Africa? I know she's from Africa. Which country? Kenya. Kenya, okay. So she's, she's half African-American and half from Kenya. Okay. Uh, I can't swim, and my children agree that I'm a cool daddy. Wow. Um, I'm going to say it's B. that you. I'm going to say it's... Um, I think your children would agree that you're cool because I know you do an awesome dad dance, you told me. Um, I am going to say that your dad wrote the dissertation on your wife's, wife's tribe, and I'm going to say it is a lie that, that you can't swim. I would, I would have to agree. <laughs> no, my children do not agree that I'm a What? Dad. Isn't that shocking? It is shocking. I know you. You are cool. Your kids are absolutely wrong. Wait, how old crying. are they? Seven and three. Whenever we go into New York City, they're, like, really nervous. Because they don't think you're cool enough to protect them? I don't think I'm cool enough to be in New York City. Oh. Is there uh, anything particular that you do? Do you wear dad jeans or that they particularly pick on? No, I break out in my cool daddy dance. 
And they don't think it's that cool? Oh, that'll do it. Yeah. yeah I got to agree with your kids. If you're breaking out in a cool daddy dance in front of them, that's not cool. Yeah, that's not cool. I got to go. I got I to side with your kids on that one. <laughs> My six-year-old, of course, thinks I'm uber cool, and that's purely because I never do anything to embarrass him. So I basically that keep, is clever. I yeah. basically I, keep I, my I mouth shut and don't try to dance around his kids, around his friends. I kind of keep a low profile and just feed them chocolate so they'll think I'm cool. I basically bribe them into thinking wide. that. I need to adopt that policy. I know. <laughs> just go along with whatever they want, and they will absolutely think you're cool. My six-year-old thinks Emily is super cool because she brings him stuff all the time, but, oh. he know, but he refuses to write her thank you notes, which is a whole separate problem. I lecture my kids on fascism. <laughs> I'm sure they're really well adjusted there in the second grade. Wait, have any of them pulled out just an argument that you have told them against you and just kind of surprised you and just said, Dad, that's, that's a mythic, that's a mythic argument? Or some Hegel dialectics or anything? Uh, um, my, my older son pulls out demo democratic political theory on a constant basis whenever I become authoritarian. Really? Say, no, Daddy, you're not supposed to be authoritarian. It's a democracy, and the democracy, everyone rules. Doesn't he know that in every house, it's really not a democracy? It is a complete dictatorship by the parents? Well, you can comment on that. <laughs> Unfortunately, I made the terrible mistake of, from a very early age, urging dem democracy. I'm a deep believer in liberal democracy, so I always told him, everyone rules, we all rule together, we all make every decision together. And then by the time I figured out that that was the wrong advice to tell a three-year-old, it was too late. You're so screwed. That's it. You got to start from scratch. You got to have a third one purely to raise them in a completely autocratic society and let the others kind of not influence that person. I look forward exactly. to the day when you're at a tape at the table and telling um, when your kids that you, they can't do something and they just pull up your book and it just says how fascism works. <laughs> Uh, at what point were you, when did you start writing this book? So I first started switching. I, I, I was working in very technical areas of philosophy for many years. And in 2009, I taught a summer course at Central European University in Budapest. And it was a wonderful summer, and Hungary was a thriving liberal democracy, and everyone was talking about their newfound freedoms and hanging out in rooftop bars, and it was wonderful. It, was, it felt like New York City in its glory years. And then I returned in 2010, uh, and Victor Orban had won, and there was a sort of somberness over the city. And I walked past a, uh, a, a placard, and St. Stephen, the patron saint of Hungary, was standing with his, uh, with holding a menorah. And I said, what does that say? And, and somebody read it to me and they said, it said, Hungary will not become another Palestine. Oh. And so I realized quickly how qu that you can be living in what you regard as a thriving liberal democracy. And especially if you're living in the cities when so much of the anti-democratic elements, the anti-democratic ethos, uh, might be masked for you, the resentment against the cities, the resentment of the freedoms that cities can sometimes represent. When that's masked from, from you, then, you know, you might not see how quickly things go. And Hungary was a wake-up call for me. And when I thought about Hungary, when I thought that of the casual anti-Roma sentiment I, I would hear on the streets, and I was like, oh, yeah, of course, that should have tipped me off. Um, so... So that was a warning for me. And then when I came back to the United States, like the, the first article I wrote in the press was about birtherism in 2011. 
Because as soon as I heard birtherism and I saw what was happening, it terrified me. Because knowing the past and knowing the structure of conspiracy theories, if you're going to target the media, here's how you target the media. Here's how the protocols of the Elders of Zion work, worked. They said, uh, the media is not reporting that the media is controlled by Jews, and that shows that the media is controlled by Jews. So it's this kind of trap you set for the media. Like, if the media doesn't report on the wacky conspiracy theory, then the media is part of the wacky conspiracy theory. And birtherism worked exactly like that. Uh, President Mr. Trump then uh, went on Fox News and said, CNN is controlled by Obama. You can tell because they're not reporting on, on the fact that Obama was born in Kenya. So once you see conspiracy theories starting to take root and starting to take hold and dominating the thought, then you're starting to see uh, attacks on the media. So all the signs we see – the attacks on the university as dens of liberalism. These are very familiar historical tropes. Right. So, and, and I just, the, and then it sets up the unreality, like you talked about, how conspiracy theories and fake news replace reason debate. Absolutely. And, and, and conspiracy theories function strangely. They function, their goal is to like undermine the credibility of the person they're aimed against. They're sometimes so wacky, like, say, take Pizzagate, sometimes just so implausibly wacky that you're not even supposed to really believe it. It's just supposed to impugn their target. The target is beyond the pale. But isn't, that, so, but isn't that, Jason, isn't that typical of what we've seen? We've seen um, quote after quote from supporters of the president saying, yeah, I get that he lies, but it doesn't matter because he's standing up for me. And I don't really care. And I don't really care if he's lying because he stands up for me. So then, truth doesn't become something that's relevant, uh, even if you know he's not telling the truth. For example, there there is virtually nobody on the planet who believes that the president did not engage in a relationship with Stormy Daniels, uh, including his supporters. They just don't care, and they see that uh, they see him as, as saying that he did and is sticking it to the man. Um, they think it's funny that he's lying and he's sticking it to the man. And so to me, it's, it's fascinating because it is a team. I talked about this on, a, on our podcast last week. There is a sense that there's a team jersey mentality where if somebody's wearing an R or a D on their jersey, that you're going to support whatever they do, regardless of what their behavior is like. Um, not for everybody, but for a lot of partisans. And, and so to me, this is just the most extreme manifestation of that, isn't that? That's right. That's how you break down democracy. You, you create a situation, Bannon in the Errol Morris democracy, uh, uh, documentary says, you know, our goal is to make, it, make politics a life or death struggle. And when politics is a life or death struggle, when it's about personal destruction, uh, then you're, you don't care about what's true and what's false. It's just our side versus their side. You'll use any weapon to win. And when you transform politics like that, you lose your democratic culture. You lose your democratic culture because the other side are not fellow citizens. They're your enemy. And so the struggle for all of us as, as this sort of politics advances is to not lose facts, not lose glimpse of the fact that we are all citizens of the same country together, despite our political differences. That's well, the main barrier. That's a, that's a very positive note to end on, on <laughs> an otherwise fairly depressing Fairly depressing topic. Jason, I cannot thank you enough for your time. Emily and I both can't thank you enough. And um, I urge everybody here to, to read 
Jason's book, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. It is a short book, but it is, I think, an incredibly impactful book and, and one, of the most, yeah. one of the most insightful books I think I've read um, in a very long time, and I couldn't put it down. Emily, I think you felt the same. And you can't I, watch the news the same again. Yeah, you will never watch the news the same way again, and it's a, once frightening and enlightening, and I think a very good guide to how we can turn things around for this country going forward. Jason Stanley, thanks so much for joining us. 